You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Milwaukee. Also the Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Algoma, where I'll be hanging out for the next couple days, uh, hanging out up in uh, Door County for the next little while. But that's okay. For now, I'm sitting in the ESPN Milwaukee studios uh, as we have a very special guest. It's not, unfortunately, Frank Madden. Frank, you're just a normal person that's on the yeah. show. Uh, Frank Madden, the founder of Brew Hoop, on the show with me as always. Uh, Frank, this is, I will say this. We've been trying to get our guest on this show for uh, a year, two years, three. I, I think as long as we've been running this show, we've been trying to get him on. And even, I think we might have even tried while we were still Brew Hoop potting. Is that, is that accurate, Frank? It's possible. It's possible. But I think when we reveal who we're talking to, it'll probably be obvious just because, um, you know, there's we, we've got this is a special person. This is a special guy who's oh, going to reveal. You, you guys are building this up way <laughs> too much. The, your name's going to be in the in the t- title of the podcast. So but by this point, everybody, is. people, people who don't know you will already be like, who the hell is this guy? But um, anyway, it'll be uh, like, what a funny last name that guy has. <laughs> Joining us today on the podcast, former director of basketball analytics for the Milwaukee Bucks, is our good friend Mike Clutterbuck. Mike, how are you? I am doing great. I'm actually looking out out on the street right now at all this the food and the crafts and the street festival, and it actually it, it looks pretty good. Yeah, I would say I'm jealous that I'm not enjoying everything that's out there, yeah. despite being excited to talk to you, but still. Uh, Mike, no longer with the Bucks, he is still a data scientist, just no longer uh, with basketball. And I guess kind of where we wanted to start off was just how you sort of got to be the director of basketball analytics with the Bucks because, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are very interested in analytics, people who read the Sloan papers every year and they're like, oh, how yeah. do these people get to do what they do? Like, how did you get there? Uh, I, I graduated with a degree in economics, which is, I feel like, usually one of the, the things that most analytics people have. It, it seems like it's popular. Um, but mostly it was when I was working at an education research group, we were, we were focusing on value-added research, which is kind of uh, evaluating teachers. It was almost like an adjusted plus-minus for teachers. Um, <laughs> you can, you, however you think about that, whether that's right or wrong, what have you. This was a university group, so we weren't looking for profit or anything. We weren't trying to screw over teachers, not at all. Like we were, we were really trying to make some of these teacher evaluation systems fair. But in my spare time, we were kind of taking a lot of that uh, that framework. Uh, a coworker of mine, two coworkers of mine, 
and we were just kind of building our own adjusted plus minus model for the NBA. And uh, my good friend John Nichols, who is now the very successful uh, director of analytics and I think other things at the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, at the time he was working for the Bucks and he was moving on and he just let me know about the opportunity um, to to apply. So I kind of put put together a portfolio and uh, submitted that and I know I had to go through at least three or four interviews um, and uh, eventually got the job. And I should say, um, as someone else who graduated with a degree in economics, I, I feel like you're selling short like things that you could actually do because I always disparage my economics degree <laughs> for, for not really being very practical. Um, right. A lot because, of people say economics is like for people who didn't want to do math. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. I got got to protect that GPA. Um, yeah. So talk to us a little bit, though, because, I mean, I, I think one of the things that, you know, people a lot of times assume about you know, somebody like uh, somebody who's like into advanced, you know, somebody who likes analytics. I mean, certainly like people like, you know, us right on this podcast, like, you know, hey, I, I know my way around, uh, you know, a, the basketball reference play index and I got a cleaning the glass membership. So, you know, therefore I, I've, I'm this, you know, analytics guy. Talk to us a little bit about like, you know, the actual work that is required to to be an everyday analytics guy. I mean, I think everybody maybe romanticizes it as like, oh, I just get to look at stats and pick out cool, insightful things and, you know, tell everybody in the organization. But obviously, there's a lot more to it than just going and looking at websites that are already out there, right? I mean, and again, not that you can reveal all the details of, you know, the, the secret sauce of, of what the Bucks did, but it, it's a lot more detail, a lot more difficult and probably a lot more technical than probably a lot of people appreciate. Uh, absolutely. And I, I think it's only gotten that way since all the tracking data started popping up um before before that i would say that most of the stats that you would derive would just come from the play-by-play um after that you suddenly were getting xml files or excel spreadsheets what have you of eighty thousand rows of this is the x coordinate of where a player is and where the y coordinate of a player is and, and then in general like did he dribble? Did he shoot? Did he rebound? Something like that. So once that data started to come around, I think you needed to have a much more technical background than than it used to be before. I think, I mean, this might be completely anecdotal, but it just seems like a lot of the stats and a lot of the people in stats coming before the tracking data were more heavily kind of statistics-based, whereas I would say now teams seem to be going a little bit more computer science based um people who can code and R and python and you know toronto is a great example people like you know they can write their own programs essentially um so i i would say that nowadays it's definitely a more more technical background but probably the best teams still have those people that can really think on a really high level and also really know basketball and then have people on their team that can kind of translate that into actual coding and the tables that you output. I want to get into some other stuff related to that, but while we're here, like if someone wants to get into sports analytics and wants to make a career of that, like 
how do you suggest they go about it? Just because, I, like Frank said, like I do think there's a lot of people that are very interested in that, and it's not something where, you know, I'm going to get a journalism degree and then I'm going to figure out a way to write about sports analytics right. or get in that way. Like you do need technical skill. Like where do you see people should go, or where do you think people should go to try to get that? Sure, and I'm probably going to just steal all this from Seth Part now because he's always much. Everyone always hits up Seth asking how they get into the business just because he took a pretty, I think, popular path, I guess, um, which is started writing, started doing awesome statistics, and then got a job in the NBA. Um, I would probably say that there is, and he would also say this, he almost always says this, is that there's no better time to to really uh, be like an analytics person in sports. there are so many platforms to write for. Like, I think anybody can start up a medium.com account and just yeah. blog, essentially. Um, that, that's really the best way. I think that's the way that you're, you'll probably gather most attention, I would say. Um, in, in terms of the technical skill sets, that's tough because I think one of the things I've always thought about college and especially like economics degrees in general is that they've never done a really good job of actually uh, teaching you how to program in like statistical programming languages. Um, so that's something that, that really often comes down to either like joining a sports analytics club at your college or just digging into one of the one of the various books out there like there's a great i think like baseball for our book or something mm-hmm. and and that's going to teach you everything you really need to know on how to program but then there's always that layer and everyone talks about this at sloan which is no matter how good your technical foundation is no matter how good your stats are if you can't communicate it uh like usually it doesn't go anywhere so i think that's where blogging or just putting your putting yourself out there essentially on you know nylon calculus on your own blog whatever um just really really honing in on getting very good at communicating i would say one thing i find interesting is i mean there's still i think this you know there's still at least an undercurrent at times of especially when you hear you know old former players talking about <laughs> analytics or something like that. there's still an undercurrent of kind of you know i test versus analytics i test versus stats like there's still some of that i think you know there's there's been i think huge progress in sort of um normalizing you know the appreciation and then moving this into something that you know i think now the perception and, and i'd love to hear your view on this but you know now i think every team feels like okay we have to have capabilities here we have to have you know investing money here again i'm sure there's probably wild variations you know i think we heard about the sixers that you know the sixers had maybe as big a staff as as anyone um you know as as when when kind of the colangelo stuff was happening that you know when it talks about you know what's going to happen with the 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 staff in philly and they actually did have a big analytics staff but um i mean in your because i think what you started in what 2013 i think right with the bucks so i mean like in in that span you know watching now now obviously you're you're outside the league um but like looking back five years, I mean, how much has sort of the perception of analytics changed? And, and, you know, is it, is it really, really different in terms of like the role of analytics that you would say, and obviously I'm sure it varies team to team, but you know, just in general, like, I mean, has it been a huge evolution or do you think that is still really more to come? Damn, that's a good question. Um, 
I would say this. I think a lot of it, um, when especially when I started, I don't think many in the front office or even coaches were aware of what SportView could do. They, they kind of had some idea of like, yeah, we've got like some cameras hanging up and I can go to... I can go to the sport view site and see some like general like catch and shoot information and things like that. But I think at the time there just wasn't there wasn't a, a a great amount of knowledge of all right what can we actually do with this um, and it, it it's kind of like staffs grew I think as people became more aware of what you could do with the data. Um, like I know personally just I mean there were things that that I would code up or I would try to code up and they would just take a really long time but they were also super insightful I would say um, and I think once you were able to communicate those ideas like hey I've got this idea I think it's promising um, I probably it's not the best use of my time to be devoting my time hundred percent to doing this because that's how long it, that's how much it would take um, I think that's when staffs started to grow grow a little larger kind of expand a little bit in terms of what they were looking for it wasn't so much um, you know I need a guy who worked in basketball who was like a manager at, at college or whatever that can do Excel spreadsheets and whatnot I think it started as the type of things you could do with SportView started to expand, I think also teams started to become more comfortable with hiring kind of outside the sports realm, I would say. While we're, while we're on the SportView stuff, let me ask you a real quick question, not to get too deep into this, but <clears throat> I think it's interesting because now a lot of that data, obviously there's like a package of public data that we can see on stats.nba.com. Right. And, you know, it's things about, you know, distance of shooters or distance of defenders to shooters and, you know, there's rim protection metrics and distance covered and speed and all this stuff. And I'm sure people have heard about a lot of these stats. And, you know, I think there's been a lot. I mean, they're just sort of out there. Right. And, and right. I think certainly if you are really into it, you've probably read about what is useful and what isn't. I mean, and this can be a comment either on what's out there publicly right now or just in general. But I mean. What does that sport? What does that type of data really unlock? Like, like what kind of, I think value that kind of does it drive? I mean, is it you know? I think we hear a lot about like you know defense is becoming at least somewhat more measurable than it was sure. for for varied reasons in in the last few years versus maybe ten years ago where you know it was just like you know the the defensive player of the year was just the guy who had the most blocks or you know right. whatever right? right? Um, I mean, is like what kind of things do you think? that type of data is really driving as far as like the good insight and then are there things that like you look at as far as things that people see your stats that are out there like the, the kind of you know things that maybe are and maybe not useless but things that maybe people get bent out of shape over or talk about which you think is just kind of like you know who cares like i don't know like like distance covered type stuff i'm sometimes right. look at that yeah. and i'm just like well okay jj reddick runs a lot so he has a lot of distance but did I learn anything? I don't. I don't know. Right? Um, no, no. So I. So I. Any, anything, <laughs> no, you anything you find particularly insightful that you can really drive from that, or or anything that you think is particularly maybe like a red herring that that has come out of this data. Uh, 
Oh, there. I mean, there's a lot of red herrings. Um, I will say that it, especially on the offensive end, I think it's really helped you define skill sets of of players. I, I think, especially on the offensive end, I think you can really narrow in now on specific types of players um, because it's it's just kind of a different outcome, I would say, than defense. Like, defense is so, so team-oriented for the most part, and on offense, I mean, you, you do kind of have... I don't know, it's tough. That's a good question. Um, I, I just think the offensive skill sets that we have stats for are less noisy than the ones that we have for defense. And, and I think every... Every analytics person who does public stuff would tell you that, you know, the distance to the uh, shooter metric, you know, like four to six feet, six to eight feet, you know, that kind of thing is pretty awful for the most part. It ignore it ignores a lot of context. Like, why may have that player been six to eight yeah. feet before he, you know, before the offensive player shot the ball, or and, and, and I will say, I don't know how it's defined now, just because Sportview moved over to Second Spectrum, and Second Spectrum's tracking is a lot more accurate, I would say. But, you know, around the rim, around the rim defense, like, that, it's a good metric. I mean, it definitely will tell you something, but I, I'm not even sure how that's defined anymore. I don't know if it's by the primary defender or if you're just around the guy. Like, what if you're behind the guy and you're technically the closest I, yeah. defender to that shooter? Are you really affect? You know, are you really affecting the shot? One might say that if a player actually takes the shot as you're closing out, that you didn't close out well, no matter the distance. Once the shot's up, it's up. He clearly didn't think he was contested that well because <laughs> he shot it. Yeah. Um, so I would say, yeah, some of those some of those defensive metrics are a little iffy. Um, Privately within teams, I think teams have gotten a ton better at actually making those type of stats useful, um, especially if you work really hard with the coaching staff to kind of define basic rules of, okay, when the ball's on this side of the floor, this is the way our defense should look. Given that fact, did this guy do the right thing? You know, those those sorts of things. But offensively, I would say the stats are – really helpful at defining offensive skill sets, I would say. I'm curious, thinking about that a little bit, when I think the the bad ideas about analytics come out is that you're just a nerd in a room with a computer yeah. and some numbers. <laughs> but like what you just said, you have to be talking with someone, you have to have some understanding of what, how a defense should move or an offense should move and what you're looking for. Like you have to have some of that, some of that knowledge. Like there has to be that knowledge base in there. How do teams sort of try to build that knowledge base with analytics people? And I guess as an analytics person getting thrown in the fire, like how did you attempt to learn more about that and have more of those concepts and get more of those ideas? Sure. Um, I mean, like, before I got my job with the Bucks, basically my basketball experience was having my dad coach me in 6th and 7th grade and and then just watching basketball. Um, but most I, – I quickly started to realize that – and I know people really like to 
to crap on coaches and whatnot and you know say they don't know what they're doing blah 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 but coaches are really smart people yeah like not only are they much smarter than you often in terms of like schemes and whatnot but they also do have to balance issues that as a fan i think you don't really think about so i think when it comes to like a like an analytics person trying to figure out like all right how do i how do i kind of like learn what's going on um it's just constant communication and it's just you know a coach coming up with a question you digging into the question going back to him with all right this is what i found and then he'll say okay you know hopefully he'll say like oh all right that's really interesting now let's throw in like these wrinkles which is like okay what if what if this guy doesn't do his job and like basically it puts him in a compromising position or something like that um so i think it's really just like you you really just gotta have an open line of communication to to really learn it i mean you you can watch it and you can have a really good sense of what the defense is supposed to be doing but I think especially when things break down and then players have to react to that, that's where that like communication with the coaches is like really, really instrumental. Do you find that typically you had guided questions? Like, obviously, I, I feel like if I would have all these numbers and actually knew how to do anything with them, I would be thinking in my head like, okay, these are all the things I find interesting about basketball. Like, let me try to answer the great sure. unknowns about basketball, but I feel like that would not be at all useful to a team. Like, I feel like there has to be like some directives put in front of you, like, Hey, explore this thing or explore. Is, is that yeah. typically how it ends up working? I mean, I mean, right. It's that balance of, okay, I'm a nerd. I think all these things are really interesting, but then there's also like, Oh, we have a, we have a game tomorrow. Yeah. And how do we win that game? Um, I, I would say that, especially like during the year, it's probably and, and again this probably depends on the staff you have. If you have ten people, you can maybe dedicate two or three people just to researching. You know the that Reddit question of okay, what if we have four guys circling Steph Curry? <laughs> even though I saw someone like debunk that rule wise, you know you might you might have enough staff to engage those questions, but. You know, if you have a, a smaller staff or probably, a, you know, even a moderate staff, it's definitely more geared towards you know, those directed questions, which is like, how, how are we doing on pick and rolls? Mm-hmm. Like, are, how, how is this combo doing on side pick and rolls? Or how are they doing on, on the offensive side on side pick and rolls and things like that? How, how much, so you are just mentioning, you know, a fair bit about like really using analytics as like, to, to support kind of tactical decision making, like coaching type type things. I mean, when you think about like where analytics is going, the kind of capabilities we have now, and, and how they're evolving, whether it's you know kind of integrating video and and data and, and all this stuff. I mean, it seems like th- th- there's obviously roles for analytics in obviously coaching in front office. I know we're going to talk about the draft here in a little bit, um, but also like you know injuries and training and and that seems like it's kind of a new newer area maybe where analytics is is kind of beginning to to be brought to bear sure i, I mean where where do you think the biggest like if, if you were going to say like in, in 10 years you know if 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 you talk about like analytics resources like where do you think the biggest 
like value is going to be from analytics? Do you think it's going to be just across all those things sort of equally? Do you think there like certain areas, aspects of the game, whether it's, you know, game prep or, or analysis or, or, you know, pro personnel, college drafting, all that kind of stuff. Is there kind of areas where you think like that's where, you know, analytics is particularly valuable or do you think it really is more kind of like the, you know, the market basket of it, it you got to apply it everywhere and, you know, it's, it's really sort of more, more kind of dispersed, I guess, in terms of where the value is. Sure. I, I would say, I mean, applying kind of analytics models everywhere is, I think, always a good idea. It's just another way to look at things. I would say that, especially in the medical area, um, a good friend of mine used to always say that the easiest way to win games is to have all your players healthy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, and I'm... I mean, I'm speaking totally outside my my realm, but and because I really don't know how much kind of the tracking data can really tell us about the load and whatnot of a player. But you know, if you can, and I don't know also if we're going to start you know chipping players during games and whatnot. But I would say that that would be a a huge advance. Is just it, if you can start getting really good like really solid medical data in terms of load and you know like what is load i mean like it's kind of a it's a big question and i mean of anybody in the league i think the bucks organization with their medical team and whatnot like they're probably the best equipped to answer it and like they're incredible um i think they would i think I think they'd even agree that, like, just even getting, even defining kind of what what can keep players on the floor essentially is is huge. I mean, that's huge. Like, you know, having your best player not have to sit out a game or not have a guy with a hamstring injury that, and not like a catastrophic hamstring injury, but like a normal hamstring injury, um, like that that's huge. That that is probably. The, the biggest impact of that I can think of other than having like a superstar um, in like consistency across the season is just having your players. Um, that being said, like I, I do think that there's there's obviously a role for analytics and all those things. And I think you've read a ton of articles, especially this year, I feel like they've come out, whether it's like Philly or Houston or Toronto. I mean, these guys really really believe in in kind of the role that analytics can help like the the philly the philly article that came out just about uh lineup optimization i mean that was always something that i was super interested in and um there i mean there's obviously there's obviously a role for that kind of stuff but i would probably and especially in the draft too i mean i I think the draft is one of those areas that analytics guys don't always want to brag but i would say that a lot of analytics guys on the down low would probably say that our models tend to do better than the way gms draft (laughs) i like i mean it's just kind of the way the numbers spew out but i mean and to a to a degree that's pretty interesting now that's on average i would say (laughs) so i mean in the long run and on average they tend to work out better but when you're in an actual scenario where there's all these different pressures it, it becomes a lot tougher to just say oh well 
he's number two on the big board, on the analytics big board. So, you know, let's draft him because the analytics guy might have, you know, Ethan Happ as number three. <laughs> and, you know, if he were out in the draft, and as much as I love Ethan Happ because I'm a UW guy, I would probably not advise any team to draft <laughs> Ethan Happ number three, even though he will show up great in models just because he's a big man that has like a 30% assist rate last year so yeah i would i would say kind of medical i would say medical analytics first um draft and just in terms of kind of marginal impact i would say draft second but who knows i might even be wrong there because i'm saying marginal impact but what really matters is winning games in in the moment. So I mean, maybe I just don't know what I'm talking about. So. <laughs> well, let me We're let me ask. Happy to have the experts on the show. Right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Let me ask you real quick. So I think we're kind of heading towards the draft stuff, which I think is, you know, it's obviously this time of year. It's really fun. And, sure. you know, you've continued to uh, probably a little more than dabble in, in kind of draft draft ideology and, and modeling. But yes. um, you mentioned lineup data and, and optimizing lineups. And I think just selfishly, I, I would love to have you comment just kind of quickly on lineup data because I know it's something that Eric and I talk a lot about. And, you know, we always have to kind of apply the caveat of small sample size warnings and you know is this actually you know i mean we see it every year right like you know a year ago Giannis, i think like from like december on the bucks were better this is this is this uh 16 17 season sure. i think you know a year ago like the bucks were actually better with Giannis off the court than yeah. on the court yeah which yeah. the whole like, the whole Kawhi leonard is like the spurs right. defense is better with Kawhi leonard yeah. off the floor right yeah right so i mean and obviously like there and we were talking about the other night you know like i mean eric bledsoe looked really good by on off because in part because the bucks had you know no backup point guard for a couple months this year and, mm-hmm. and also i think part of it was because bledsoe was probably a better player than maybe you know, a lot of people, certainly what a lot of people saw in the playoffs, but, you know, just in general, like, you know, there's a lot of hand ring over Bledsoe, but, I mean, he's a talented guy. Um, like, when you think about looking at lineup data in particular, how much should we make of that? I mean, I know we looked a lot at, I mean, we talked a lot about the Bucks starters and their success this past year, and a lot of it is just because that's always the biggest sample size. You know, if a team is relatively healthy, the the most minutes to a five-man combination is always going to be the starting five generally. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm always kind of torn because we obviously, you know, it's it's pretty, I guess, like, one question is, you know, like, it's descriptive, obviously, right? Like, we can look back on last year and say the Bucks were pretty good with their starters. Like, they were much worse when their starters were on the bench. Okay, like, that's fine. You know, that that's that's like a statement of, of fact of what happened, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, next year the same's gonna happen. Maybe they'll be better, maybe they'll be worse. Correct. Um I mean how do you how do you kind of think about lineup data? I mean, is that something that you would say teams should think about a lot? Like do I mean that's it's one obvious thing that I think a lot of coaches probably like can understand and kind of grasp because it's fairly intuitive. Um, but it's also it seems like the kind of thing that you have to be careful with because you know, if you're in February and you're seeing like, oh, this one lineup is plus 50 points per 100, but it's played 25 minutes, and right. you know, it's like, oh, okay, great. Um, are there any kind of rules that that you kind of use when you look at lineup data, whether like 
you won't even look at lineups unless it's a certain number of minutes or anything kind of about lineup data that you know you think is important for people to kind of keep in mind as, as like we all try to sort of reason through the data that's out there and figure out what's real and what's not sure um number one is i don't know if there's a defined threshold of minutes i, I just always kind of looked at it on feel like i would just kind of extrapolate it into like oh this is this many games or you know this many this many quarters or whatnot but i think the biggest thing absolutely the biggest thing is don't use raw lineup data like so there are there are times when a lineup might get five minutes in a game and for whatever reason uh that guy like the the opponent the guy's just on fire it just happens. I mean, it's, it's basketball. Like, guy, guys just get hot sometimes. Um, and for that reason, and I, I, and I forget who actually publishes them on Nylon Calculus, but he does luck-adjusted net ratings, which Might are... J- Jacob Goldstein, maybe? I know Jacob it, it could does a bunch of, right. bunch of luck-adjusted stuff. Yeah, Yeah, I, you know what? I think you're right. Um, just because, I mean... There, there have been players that I've looked at that when you account for the fact that, again, three-point percentage is super variable, um, and especially free-throw percentage. Free-throw percentage is just, there is no free-throw percentage defense. Anytime <laughs> anytime you hear someone on TV that says, like, they're the, they're the, and I don't know who says it anymore, maybe I'm just inventing people that say it, but... Anytime Mark Jackson, someone, probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Anytime someone says like they're, you know, they they rank number two in free throw percentage defense. It's like, ah, how much of that is actually them? Like, is that the the trash talking? Maybe they're a really good trash talking team and they get people off their game or something. But I mean, you're you're talking about sometimes like four to five points per hundred possessions, which is a huge difference just because a lineup may not have hit their free throws and you really had nothing to do with that other than potentially sending them to the line like that that possibly could be something related to your defense um but i i mean i i rarely look at the raw adjust you know net offense net defense numbers i always look at or i try to at least always look at adjusted and I think it's so important. I mean, there have, I, I really can't say, like, specifically, but there have been narratives that have just been completely shattered when you look at luck-adjusted plus, plus-minus numbers. Like, one of them was that, I think it was that Kawhi Leonard, you know, I, I remember 538 putting out the, I think it was 538, the, Kawhi, the Spurs are better on defense than Kawhi Leonard yeah. off the floor. And I was like, yeah, just because teams are just like, shooting astronomically lower amounts like a lower three per, three point percentage and yeah yeah, yeah it's, there was a number of ways to poke it apart yes absolutely and i would say in almost any lineup data there's especially smaller sample size and whatnot there's always ways to kind of pick that apart but i think people would it'd be a big step forward if people started using luck adjusted plus minus as a as opposed to raw does it get dangerous within a team like when like a coach like we're talking about directed questions like hey how is this lineup doing like is that something that is asked is that something that like you're looking at like oh in these last 10 games this lineup is great but 
yeah, for you, it's like, well, yeah, it is doing good, but there was, like, these free throws, and they hit a bunch of three. Like, you have to factor in this five-minute right. stretch where they got crazy hot. Like, because I think to what it was that Nuggets game this year where the Nuggets hit. Like, oh, yeah. It was, it, I was insane, at that game. It was insane, one of the few games I was at this year it, or like, that it, year. An insane amount of threes, yeah. and it was like, what? what is this? Like, you, there's no way whatever happened in that game could be applied to anyone, right. really. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's just... Again, it kind of comes back to the communication where, I mean, I, I think a coach will instinctively know, like, they shot the shit out of the ball. Yeah. I don't know if I can say that. Can no, I? You're fine. Uh, I'm fine. All right. We've dropped F-bombs on you. Oh, we're, right. we're, we're just a really hip podcast, Mike. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Hip to be square. Yeah, exactly. Hip to right. be square. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean... I think coaches instinctively know that, and I think it's important to especially show, like, 10 games is probably not enough. Yeah. Like, 20 games might not be enough. 30 games might not be enough. Like, especially some of those weirder lineups. Um, So, yeah, it just just comes – I mean, it's just being clear with the stats and – like, I I can't imagine a coach not being receptive to the fact – that an analytics guy might like show them some of these plus minus numbers and be like, look, this takes into account the fact that this lineup, they were like 12 for 12 from the free throw yeah. line. Like, so I mean, goes, what, yeah. what are you going to do? Like, yeah. so, me, why, so why does Giannis at center not work? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, why does Giannis at center? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> Go ahead. Here, well, here's, here's, I think on that topic of small, you know, I think what we're alluding to, you know, the, the, the buck sort of small ball dreams of a lot of us who, who kind of observe the team haven't really been realized yet. Um, let me ask you one kind of at least one generic question. And I think we've already talked like we, we should probably just do the, like a longer podcast sort of like just digging into a bunch of like more general league stuff this year. But I think one question I did want to ask you was, you know, looking at the especially the last two rounds of the playoffs, like and, and I, I know a lot of people kind of like are trying to have like debated whether this is like good for the sport from like an aesthetic standpoint. But you know, obviously, we sort of saw the last two rounds. Last year was sort of like the finals were like this, and then this year, the last two rounds of the playoffs were like this. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously a huge conversation topic for the Bucks because you know when they were switching with on at center, like it seemed like they were a totally different team. And we saw kind of this trend of like the Rockets really leading this like movement towards. Obviously, people talk about the way they shoot tons of threes, but the way that they really like practiced all year to defend the Warriors, whereas you know like, the Cavaliers sort of like screwed around all year and then looked like it when they had to play the cat the 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 warriors in the in the playoffs do you see like the sport moving in like kind of a trend towards like what we're seeing with with the rockets and warriors and you know big guys not being able to really play in in kind of key situations and you know everything being switched and iso ball being really important things like that i mean do you think this is like a sustainable trend that, that this is kind of where the league is going or um you know because i think a lot like sort of the rocketization of the league is sort of this interesting talking point and you know mostly we've talked about it in terms Maury of just won't stop revolutionizing the game I know. <laughs> first it's mori ball now yeah. it's the rocket now it's mori d <laughs> or rocketization but i think like people usually talk about in terms of like the three-point shooting but like i think also like i mean i think both sides of the ball like the three-point shooting is sort of the 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 kind of thing that most people seize on but i think if you watch the last especially the last month of basketball you know they damn near beat the warriors by largely because of their defense and and i'm kind of curious like 
you know, a lot of us are asking, well, can the Bucks do something like that? I mean, do you think the league is heading towards that direction, or do you think maybe we're over-indexing a little bit on on what we saw just from the very elite teams? I mean, I think they'll. I think a lot of teams will try and do it. I don't know if they have the personnel to do it. I do think that, and this might be my own batshit philosophy about defense and whatnot, but I, I've always thought about the the simpler you can make it, the better. I've always thought that the less you force your defenders to think, that I think they just end up in a better position. So that's that's where I think like the the switch everything mentality kind of helps because it's like you don't have a player screwing up on a on a on a pick call. Like you don't for that split second you're not out of position, which the great teams can just exploit right away. Um, so I, I think teams will try and do it. And, and again, I don't know if they have the personnel. Like refer, like going going to like the big man thing or whatever. Again, I think Houston did just fine with Capella. Yeah. Um, you could argue that OKC did pretty well with Stephen Adams in that one series. And again, he has KD and Russ, but like Stephen, like they did pretty well. Like Stephen Adams was able to be a factor in that series yeah. essentially. So I don't think like the the tradi- and I don't know, I would consider them kind of I would say more traditional big men than not. Um so I think there's still a, like a role for that. Um I mean, I guess you could say that those guys have an ability to potentially like switch out on the perimeter and at least just defend for a little bit. Um so I don't know, that's a, that's a tough question. I I think I think teams will try and do it. Team teams try and emulate certain styles. Um, I think switching is one of those styles that, yeah, you need the personnel to be able to do it effectively. But I also do think that it has some benefits kind of outside that talent level, which is simply making someone beat you one on one, which traditionally for most players is not a great shot. Yeah. Right, you you can see you can see the math in that in that theory, and against the great teams, I, I, I mean, I guess you know, like Houston, they were they were able to do it. Like, yep. I mean, <laughs> Golden State's got a lot of pretty good ISO players um, that can create their own shot, but yeah, yeah I, I think I, I think the switch the whole switching thing does have some benefits outside of just what your kind of like existing talent is. I, I think it's good to simplify things as much as possible. I think what I'm fascinated by is like there's there's blank busters for everything. Like you have a zone busters, you have, you know, if you're in a high hedge, you have plays to break that right. up. Like Or guys that, that can read it like that split second correct. when it breaks down. So I'm fascinated by whatever switch busters are going to be. And like we saw it some in those series where yeah. it would be like, okay, well, we're going to get this switch so then we and can then get, get this, this switch, switch and, then and then this switch and correct. then eventually like we'll get, we get this, that matchup we want. Correct. And uh, like I'm just fascinated to see how that all works. Like is it all of a sudden is it just going to be we're slipping every screen? Like because right. NBA teams are going to take the whole summer to figure this out. Like right. if everyone's going to switch everything, well, how do we beat that? So and I mean, and, and I would say against great teams like. Again, like if if Golden State is running four, you know, four pick or four screens just to get Katie the ball against 
somebody. That's a win for your defense. Like, I mean, I, I, I mean, KD is good enough where sure. he can score with eight seconds left on the shot clock. But I would say I would agree in general. Getting a guy the ball with, you know, if a team is going to run four to five screens just to find a matchup, and they have seven seconds left on the shot clock, it's probably on average a good result for your defense. Yeah. Especially if you can keep it outside the perimeter, and you've got a guy again. You got a guy with seven seconds left on the shot clock who might not be like the greatest pull-up three-point shooter, <laughs> which I know you really like pull-up three-point <laughs> shooters. Having having listened to the podcast as of late, um, you know if you don't have a guy who's a great pull-up three-point shooter and they have seven seconds left on the shot clock and they're isoing, I, I in my opinion, you've won. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 